Let's pray together. Father, what an amazing opportunity to come and to witness and to see and to sing of your grace. And so we ask now for these next few moments that we come to your word that once again you would enrich us with your presence. You would enrich us with the hope of this gospel. You transform us. You change us. And you would feel the full devotion of our hearts that you would hear the songs of your people rise to heaven and give you the praise, glory, and adoration that you deserve. This time is for you and for no other. And so we commit it now to your presence. We commit it to this amazing grace that changes us. In the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Well, it's great to see everybody this Sunday morning. How's everybody doing? You doing well? Good, good. It's good to see you. I hope you've had a good weekend so far. hope it's been a restful weekend. I don't know if that's been the case for some of you. That It's been something that we need in our home. For whatever reason, the Smith household, I feel like, has been somewhat tired. I don't know if it's the first two weeks of school and adjusting to that routine or what it is, but we, we definitely have found ourselves being a little bit more in need of rest than normal. And I, and I say that because the last two days in particular, our standard bedtime routine has kind of been off. Uh, typically what happens is when it comes time for us to put our kids to bed, we have this process, right? We have this same procedure that we typically walk through. It's time to get your pajamas on, brush your teeth, let's go to your room, and, and, and Jennifer and I typically split up. We each pick a child, or they pick us, and then we lay in their room, and we read them a book. We talk to them for a little bit. We say prayers, and then we, we maybe sing a song, and then we just kind of ease them into sleep, right? That's how we typically work through the bedtime routine. Uh, and then after that, typically what happens is that Jennifer and I reconvene in the living room, and then she and I talk and hang out for the next hour or two, uh, before we call it a night. But what has been different these last two nights is that she and I both have fallen asleep in our kids' rooms because we're so tired. So obviously we are in need of some, some rest ourselves. And, and I will tell you that part of the reason that I, I typically long for that time with, wife, with my wife is because it's the only time of the day that it's just the two of us. So it's not uncommon when it gets time for the bedtime routine to start. I'm, I tend to be more the taskmaster. Master. I'm kind of like, all right, let's do this. Brush your teeth. Let's go. We can do it. We can get in bed. Let's, let's make this happen because I'm, I'm motivated to spend that time with my wife. And, and it took us a while to get there, right? It didn't always start off that way because Jennifer and I, we actually have different sleep habits. Uh, or at least we did as we were entering into the marriage. Uh, I'm a night owl. Anybody else a night owl here? Let me see your hands. All right, amen. I knew, I love it. Okay, we can hang out later tonight. I, I've always been a night owl. Uh, my mom used to tell me that if anything was going on, I just had to be a part of it. You know, she'd put me in bed and I'd come back out. I'm like, what's happening? Yeah, I want to stay up, you know, and I just had that, that desire. So I've never required much sleep. Jennifer, though, when we got married, uh, she was kind of more on the end of the spectrum of where she really enjoyed the seven to eight hours, right? I, I kind of need this. I want to fight for this. I need to protect it. And, and I didn't really think it was going to be too much of an issue, but we were going through this premarital counseling uh, season right before marriage, and they were talking about expectations, conversations to have, and somewhere along the way, this conversation came up. And she just mentioned it in passing, and she said, well, you know, we'll go to bed at the same time. And I was like, we're going to what? And she said, well, well, we'll go to bed at the same time. And I, all I could think of was, well, what if I'm not tired? And she said, well, that's still what husbands and wives do. Like, they go to bed at the same time. And so I had, like, this image of me just laying in bed, like, staring at the ceiling going, I'm trapped, you know, this isn't going to work. And so I immediately thought the only way this marriage is going to work is if I convert her to being a night owl, right? Like, I need to pray. And so after much prayer and fasting, the Lord transformed my wife, right? The old is gone, the new has come, and now she actually can stay up later than I do. And so we enjoy 
this time together. Now, I, I say all that to tell you that we, we have these routines. It's a very simple uh, portrayal of a common experience on an everyday that reveals motivation, right? My, my motive to get through that bedtime experience with my kids is to hang out with my wife, right? I enjoy that opportunity. Now, granted, a lot of times our time together after the kids are down often looks like this. How was your day? Really good. How was yours? Right? But I still love it, you know, and I'm motivated to get to that part of the day because it's the only time that we have. And, and so the point is motives dictate action, right? We all know this, and we can see our motives in these everyday examples in a lot of different ways. And, and I bring that to you today because when we begin to evaluate our motives, we begin to see what's really shaping our identity. And in the basic uh, message for us today that we all know coming in here is that when you encounter this gospel, it should absolutely impact your motives. It should change what drives you. It should transform what you care about, right? And, and we need to see that transformation in a very pronounced way. And the, the more we evaluate our motives, the more we see how our identity is being shaped. Now, the, the basic premise for this particular message is that our motives are best revealed and often most shaped, our identity is most shaped through our approach to prayer and to fasting. Here's what I mean. You can hear this gospel message over and over. Right? You can hear it time after time. You can even commit it to memory. You can even talk about it with somebody else. But until you pray, Lord, Jesus, come and take hold of my life, I want to follow you, it has not truly impacted you. Right? You can study the scriptures over and over again, commit them to memory. You can know all these different facts about the Bible, but until you pray, Lord, let me hide your word in my heart that I might not sin against you, it hasn't truly shaped you and molded you. So your prayer life, your approach to prayer, your approach to fasting reveals your motivations and helps shape your identity. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. So I'm curious, what comes to mind when you hear the, the words prayer and fasting? Like what picture do you get? You know, for me, I, I was exposed to those in different ways. Fasting really wasn't anything I experienced from a spiritual standpoint until high school. Right? Prior to that, it was just abstaining for food for dietary reasons or for random reasons. Right? I, mean, I didn't really understand it until high school. And even then, it was a very crude and rudimentary understanding of what it really means. It took time before God's word really got a hold of me and I started to picture Isaiah 58, right? a, a yearning for, for God to loose the chains of injustice. And when you think about prayer, uh, I grew up in a home where we prayed fairly regularly, almost twice a day. Um, we would pray before every dinner and at night before bed. But it was always a repetitive prayer. It was one that we would recite. So like we would sit around the dinner table, we'd join hands, and we'd say, for food, for friends, for home and heaven, for all thou hast to mercy given, we give you thanks, O oh God, amen. Right? And I said that for years without knowing what it meant. Like I had no clue what I was saying, but I knew I could say it. And so it was very repetitious, even though... It was familiar, so it took time before I really began to realize the beauty of spending those quiet moments in conversation with God. So I'm curious, what's your picture? Like when you come into this discussion today of what does it mean to be driven by prayer and fasting, how does that shape your identity? What image do you hold on to? Well, we're going to look at a text today where Jesus begins to, to clarify what it really should look like. Now as a church, We've already identified this as a very important conviction that's shaping our culture, right? We want to be a church that is prayer-driven and puts an emphasis on fasting. And so this is a regular part of our experience here. Every week, faithful people in this church gather together on Wednesday nights, and we lift up 
the sick and the hurting, the needs of this congregation. Once a month, we encourage everybody to meet in this chapel, to come together as, as the whole church, to pray with each other, pray for each other. And consistently, we, we point back to that quote from Oswald Chambers, right? Prayer does not fit us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. And so we commit ourselves to it fasting. We've asked people to, to set aside at least one day a month to just, to just be able to uh, foster that discipline of fasting, to yearn for God to, to move in your life and in the life of this church. And so we've, we've said this prayer numerous times. It's in your worship guide. We've, we've referenced it over and over again that when we come collectively as a church, our prayer is for God's power to be unleashed. We're to be unleashed in our lives, in this church, in this community, in the world, so that every tongue, tribe, and nation can come to know and proclaim the saving work of Jesus Christ. That's our prayer. That's what we fast for. That, that's what's shaping our identity. But the question is, is not how is it shaping us as a church, how is it shaping you as an individual? How does your commitment to prayer and fasting reveal your identity? And for that, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 6. Now here's a, a couple of things about prayer and fasting from a biblical standpoint. When you look at, at these two practices in the scriptures, you see that it is a key ingredient, a key characteristic of God's people, right? You can look at a very holistic description of prayer, that this is a way in which we come before God with requests. We, we come to make commitments, to vow. We come with praise and adoration, and we can do it in numerous forms, we can do it in spoken word. We can do it in poetry. We can do it in something that is recited. We can do it with song and with singing, with music and with crying, with groaning. There are numerous examples of how people pray in the scriptures. It is a chief characteristic of God's people. Fasting, historically, was something that was really just attached to the Day of Atonement. It was something that God's people did in honor of that festival, in honor of that day. But as the exile began to unfold and people were strange and no longer near the temple, it became more of a regular pattern of their commitment to the Lord. And so they would pray collectively as a nation at times. They would do it privately as individuals. But it was a regular characteristic of their identity, right, to long for God to do something. This whole body response that would ignite their cravings to desire God to do something. So it's always been characteristic. But Jesus comes along and he begins to give us a very important instruction in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have your Bibles, let's start in verse 5. We're going to read a lengthier passage today. We're going to go through verse 18. But let's read together Jesus' words on these two important topics. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you fast, 
Do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Okay, this is a lengthy text, and so let me tell you how we're going to tackle it this morning. The, the best way for us to begin to understand what Jesus is teaching us is to understand the context in which it is being presented, right? So, so here's what's happened. Last week, we talked about what it means to be biblically guided, and we looked at Matthew 5, 17 through 20, where Jesus talks about he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, that he is here to affirm all of these teachings in the Old Testament, right? And so we looked at these scriptures. Well, if you continue through chapter 5, you're going to see all these contrasting statements where Jesus says, well, you've heard it said this, but I tell you this. And he kind of redefines some of these key teachings of the, of the law, of the prophets, of, of this Old Testament scripture. But then in chapter 6, his emphasis changes, right? He has a different theme and a different point. And so flip to the left there and look at chapter 6, verse 1. This gives us the, the theme and the structure with which we need to understand the passage we just read. Chapter 6, verse 1 says this, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. All right, so this is how we begin to understand this passage. It starts with the words, be careful, pay attention. It's a word of warning, right? Jesus is about to explain to us what not to do when we practice our faith of righteousness. Now, what he does in chapter 6 is he actually gives us three tenets of righteousness, giving, prayer, and fasting. Now, we're not going to look at giving today. We're saving our discussion on giving for the end of the month, and, and we're going to look at another passage in the, in the Sermon on the Mount to really highlight it. But those are the three things he's highlighting, okay? Giving, prayer, and fasting. Now, if you read through chapter 6, you will see that the paragraph that is devoted to each of those sounds very familiar, uh, familiar, similar. Right? It's almost this similar flow, this, this almost word-for-word discussion. And so he's using this first as a word of caution. Now, in between his discussion of prayer and fasting, in between this warning, he kind of deviates and says, in fact, let me give you an example of how to pray. So that's how we're going to approach understanding this text today. We're going to first look at the word of warning. Right? What should we not do with prayer and fasting? We're going to look at those two things simultaneously. And then we're going to deviate to this exploration, this, this expository part where he begins to elaborate a little bit further on what prayer actually should look like. Okay? And so when he begins, if you look at those paragraphs almost simultaneously, he says, when you pray, when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites. That's an important word for us to understand the fullness of this message. Hypocrites means actor. In fact, uh, it initially had uh, no negative connotation to it when it was first used in this time period. It wasn't until Christianity got a hold of it and adopted it in this context that it started to have a negative feel to it. It, it really just meant to act, to be on a stage, to pretend, a pretender, more or less. And so what Jesus is saying is don't pretend, don't act. And he's referencing certain practices that were very common in that point in time. With prayer, he references this practice of people standing up in the synagogues to pray publicly or sometimes even out on the street corner, right? With fasting, he's referencing this practice that the Pharisees uh, were known to fast at least two times a week, and they would actually go to the lengths of disfiguring themselves to call attention to their fasting, 
right? And so it was always put on display. It was always public. And he's saying, quit acting. Quit pretending, right? And it's calling this attention to something that you and I often wrestle with, which is that opening statement that sometimes we do things just so it can be seen by others. We put our righteousness on display, right? We, we want to partake in the stage. There are many of us in here that know what it's like to pretend. Now, here's the challenge, is that a lot of times when you begin to have this discussion of, of an actor putting it on stage, you think, well, maybe that's just for those people that have those personalities that are really extroverted and love the center of attention, but that's not the case. You, you can still be the extra in the background and still be on stage, right? This is a discussion of how people want to be seen. And this is the problem for you and I is when we begin to have our motives driven by being seen by others, that that begins to influence how we conduct ourselves and how we pursue our faith. And so what ends up happening is that we create these platforms to reveal our righteousness. And sometimes we do that uh, publicly through, through social media, or sometimes we do it really in our own midst. Sunday morning becomes one of the main areas where we begin to create a stage and present our righteousness to each other. And it's just to be seen. In our context in particular, it's that cultural Christianity. Right, it's accepted, it's expected, it's where I can meet more people, and, and we have these motivations that are driven by being seen by others. And that becomes problematic, because what'll happen, and what we've seen happen, and many of us have been guilty of, is that we can go through life and we can be terrible, we can be a jerk to our colleagues. We can be brutal at home in how we treat our spouse or our children or our parents. We can, we can be harsh to our neighbors and then come here and still be a deacon. Right? We, we can be rude and unforgiving and, and short-sighted and still come here and teach the Bible. Right? We can get in this brutal argument on the way to church, and as soon as we pull up in the parking lot, it's showtime. Smile. Everything's good. It's an act. Jesus says, stop pretending. You're not fooling anyone. Right? What he begins to to point out to us is that what really is going to reveal our motivations is what happens when no one is looking, what happens in secret, what happens in the unseen moments. That's where you need to be spending your time. Now, here's an important disclaimer, okay? Now, this is important for us because he's essentially saying, do this in secret, but, but how do we reconcile that with what we've read if you've read the context in chapter 5? Because in chapter 5, he says... Let your light shine. Let other people see your good deeds. Right? So, so how do we reconcile him saying, no, let people see. No, actually keep it in secret. What's he advocating for? Okay, Jesus is not advocating that everything about your faith and your righteousness be kept secret. Right? He's not advocating for some sort of Christian espionage where nobody knows that you're like the secret agent. I'm a believer, but nobody knows it. Right? I'm doing it in secret. Right? He's not calling for monasticism where we just retreat and seclude ourselves from the world so that nobody knows what we're doing. There's a huge difference between these two, and it's related to motive. In chapter 5, he says, let your good works be seen by others. Why? So that they can praise your Father in heaven. Here, don't do these things in public so that you may be seen. What Jesus is calling attention to is this innate desire that we have to seek the approval of mankind. 
So here's the question for this morning. Whose approval do you seek? What motivates you? There are a lot of things that motivate us in this life. We can be motivated by money. We can be motivated by relationships. We can be motivated by status. And more often than not, those motives are somehow attached to our desire to find approval and adoration from others. And that's what we long for. And one of the things that we've seen recently in our culture that has highlighted this tendency is social media. Because now our approval can actually be quantified. Right? Every thought we have, every article we read, every food that we eat, we can put online and see how many people approve it. It's quantified. How many likes did I get? How many retweets did I get? How many comments? How many shares? And we are obsessed with it. So we keep coming back. Now, technology didn't create that desire. It was already there. It just highlights this innate desire that we seek the approval of others. So that's the question this morning. You want to begin to understand what a prayer-driven, fast-filled life begins to do to shape your identity? First, ask yourself, what's your motive? How much of what you do is driven by the fact that it gets to be seen by others, and how much of what you do is driven by what happens when no one is looking? So Jesus calls that out. And then he begins to to elaborate a little bit further and says, no, you need to, to use this word of caution. Don't be this way. Here's what I want you to do. Now, he continues with a little bit more of a discussion on prayer. He says, don't babble like the pagans who think their many words are going to be what causes their father to hear them, right? The father already knows what you need. Now, now here's what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying you shouldn't have long prayers, right? I'm a big believer in long prayers, right? So he's not saying they need to be short, and he's not saying they can't be repetitive. What he's highlighting is what our mindset is in terms of God's willingness to listen. Because the Gentiles, the pagans, their belief was, unless I pray for an elaborate amount of time, and unless I'm incredibly repetitive like a pestering child, this deity will not hear me. What Jesus is saying is, you don't need to have that mentality. Your father is ready to listen. He knows what you need. If you want to pray uh, a long prayer, do it. If you want to pray a repetitive prayer, do it. But know that he's ready to listen regardless of the duration and regardless of the content. He's there for it. And so he, he clarifies and gives us this picture of a father that's willing to listen. And so then he continues and says, so let me show you how to pray. And I love that. I love that we have a simple reminder that it's good to be taught how to pray. Is prayer easy? On some level, yes. Right? It's simple. It's amazing that you and I have the freedom wherever we are to offer a prayer to God. It's a simple conversation. It is incredibly freeing and easy to access. And yet, it is a discipline. It is something that we should grow and learn how to do. This is the natural progression for any of us, right? We all are on a journey of learning how to communicate, right? When we all show up, the only thing we know to do is cry, right? That's it. That's the only way that we communicate. And then we have these parents that say, no, let, let me give you words, and then let me show you how to use those words, and let me show you which words not to use, and here's how you can have conversation. Here's how you listen, and our whole life is figuring out what does it mean to dialogue and understand. It's, it's it's worth us recognizing today that it's okay to be taught how to pray. And that's what Jesus wants us to do. He says, let me give you words. And so what does he give us? Well, he starts with our Father in heaven. I love that. Uh, you know, the backdrop of Judaism 
would have all of these titles assigned to God to acknowledge his, his deity, his sovereignty, his majesty, his glory, these elaborate titles. And Jesus comes in and shatters that paradigm by using this intimate word, Abba, Father. Now, it's, it's so familiar to us that we wouldn't really feel the impact that it would have on the hearers of the day. But Jesus reveals to us with a simple term that God is like a father who loves his child. And yet, though he has this consuming, nurturing love, he is still sovereign. And so we have this amazing picture of who God is. Now, one of the things that you and I need to recognize is that many of us in this room today have had an earthly experience of a father that has created significant wounds. Some of you come in here today, and when you hear the word father, you think of neglect, you think of abuse, you think of abandonment, and you say, well, if that's God, I want no part of it. And so if that's your story, let me first tell you I'm sorry. And let me also tell you that we're here to walk with you, to help you find healing through those experiences. But I also want to challenge you and let you know that your earthly experiences should not define a heavenly reality. Heavenly reality should define your earthly experience. Do not let your wounds rob the meaning of this word. Let God restore the meaning of this word. You have a loving Father in heaven. And that is remarkable for all of us to take in. The God of the universe sees us as his children. So we pray to a loving Father. And so then what do we pray? We, we have this prayer that unfolds that has two sets of petitions, right? Kind of two categories. The first grouping of petitions are all kind of related to God's glory. The second set then inform how we pray for our own personal good. All right, so when you look at that first set of petitions, it says, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Someone's name, this was incredibly significant in the scriptures, a name was attached to someone's character, was attached to their, their worth, their status, their prestige. So the name of God to be hallowed is to say, we want your name to be seen as glorious as it deserves to be. We want people to see just how amazing you truly are. It's not asking for his name to become glorious, it's to say, let people see the glory that is already inherently in your name. Let's pray for your kingdom, your rule, your reign in our lives, in this world. Jesus has come already announcing the kingdom, and the disciples are saying, we want to participate in it, and we want to awaken others to it, so let's long for the rule and reign of God to exist in our lives. Let us long for his will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will, his plan, his purposes above our own. All of it is related to God's glory. This is how prayer begins to shape our motivations, begins to, to transform our identity. Right? People that are people of prayer are passionate about the kingdom of God. Your identity is found in not achieving your will, but his. Not trying to make your kingdom, but his. This is the first thing that we see of how prayer transforms us because when we begin to be focused and fixated on the kingdom and the glory of God, it changes how we even interpret our own personal good, which is the second section of these petitions, right? The first one is, give us this day our daily bread. Now, in this setting, this was an important prayer because it was more common for people to only find a day's wages at a time, 
right? It's not like today where you have this ongoing uh, commitment and a salary and all these different things. It typically was, I found this work for today, and this will be enough for me. And so this is a prayer for daily provision. Now, we struggle with understanding the importance of that because we live in an affluent society, and we live in a society that has highly valued uh, the idea of self-sufficiency. I don't think, I could be wrong, but I don't think many of us in here are worried about where our next meal is going to come from. We're not worried about how we're going to find food tomorrow. That wasn't always the case here. And here we exalt the idea of self-sufficiency over and over again. Here's the problem when you have affluence and you have an ideal of self-sufficiency. It turns to greed. We always want more. If I could just accumulate one more thing or have one more luxury, one more comfort. And so when we begin to pray this way, it breaks us free from those sort of mentalities and it helps us see that Christ is enough. Praying for our daily provision helps us become content. Changes our motives. Our motives are no longer driven by the abundance of tomorrow but by the sufficiency of today. Our identity becomes people that are content. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This prayer is, is saturated with the importance of forgiveness, right? In fact, it comes back up after this example of prayer. We have another couple of verses that Jesus elaborates on. In the same way that you forgive others, that's the forgiveness that's going to be given to you. And so we have this emphasis of forgiveness. And you and I need to recognize that part of what makes prayer so powerful is that the more you and I spend in the presence of a holy God, the more aware we become of our unholy state, of our own brokenness. And the more we are aware of our brokenness, the more we are aware to extend grace to others. Right? Think of this quote. I came across this quote in my studies, in my scriptures. I, I, I thought this was really well said. It's by John Stott. He says, once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. If, on the other hand, we have an exaggerated view of the offenses of others, it proves that we have minimized our own. So what he's saying is, is that you want to figure out whether or not your prayer life has really altered and shaped your motivation towards forgiveness and your identity of being forgiving. See how you extend forgiveness to others. How would people describe you? Are you known as a forgiving person? Are you quick towards resentment? Are you quick to holding grudges? Are you, are you slow to seek reconciliation with people? And if that's the case, then there's a good chance that we have lost sight of the measure of our own offenses against God that we somehow have become entitled and we somehow are owed those sorts of actions to be fair to us as opposed to extending forgiveness to others. And so what we do as people of prayer is we come in for the presence of God and we are awakened to our own need of mercy. I love the example of the tax collector who beats his breast and says, have mercy on me, a sinner. People who pray are motivated by forgiveness. They are quick to receive, quick to extend, and quick to ask for forgiveness. That's what begins to motivate us and shape our identity. Then we have this discussion on temptation, right? Lead us not into temptation. Now, James 1.13 teaches us that God does not tempt. So this isn't a prayer saying, Lord, don't tempt me. This is more about recognizing that we live in a world with fleshly desires where temptation becomes a reality, and we are asking for strength and perseverance to withstand within it, right? Help me endure these moments of temptation. Help me uh, persevere in those moments where my flesh is weak. 
And so what we begin to see is that the more we pray, and we pray in this way, we begin to be motivated by that which is right as opposed to that which we want, that which feels good. When we pray this way and we have that motive, we become people of integrity. That begins to shape our identity. We know what it means to withstand the temptations of the world. And then he closes with that line, and deliver us from the evil one. It's a powerful statement that should remind each of us that evil is a reality. A lot of times we don't want to acknowledge it. We want to pretend like it's not there, but evil is a reality. We just turn on the news and we find one more story of abuse, one more story of crime, one more story of hatred. It is all around us and it is within us. And the scriptures teach us that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to whom he can devour. Evil is real. And when we pray this way, we are awakened to the fact that we do not have the power to overcome it. We are people who need to be rescued, and we serve a God who is a rescuer, and we long for and rely upon his deliverance. It's a beautiful prayer. And so when you step back and you just look at a summary of what Jesus has just taught us, we see some remarkable things, right? That it begins with a word of warning that all of us today need to evaluate our motivations. Are we driven by seeking God's glory or our own? Whose approval do we long for? What truly motivates us? When we are truly motivated by his kingdom and his glory, then we become people who are passionate enough to pursue that kingdom and we know what it means to be content. Lord, just give me what I need today. We become people that are quick to forgive. Lord, help me find forgiveness and extend it to others. We become people that can endure temptation, become people of integrity. Lord, don't lead me into this temptation. We become people that understand the dependency of God's power and his strength to overcome the evil of this world. Deliver us, God, from evil. This is how Jesus wants us to pray. So the question this morning is very simple. What does your prayer life look like? What drives you to pray and fast? Are you willing to get up early when no one else is looking? to be with the Father? Are you willing to stay up late? Are you willing to seek those quiet and secret places because it's there that you find your true reward? What does it look like in your life? See, the only way that we really begin to allow that to shape our identity is when we truly become people driven by prayer and emphasize fasting so that we can long to be with our Father and have him shape our motives and our identity. I was talking about this bedtime routine earlier, and as much as I enjoy spending time with my wife once my kids are asleep, I'll also tell you I absolutely love the time I get with my kids every time we put them to sleep. And the routine that we have with them today is one that we established at birth. As I still have these very strong memories in my mind of what it was like when they were infants, and I would sit there, and after they would have their bath, I'd bring them in, and we'd get them dressed in their pajamas, and then I'm rocking them, and I'd read them a book. I'd talk to him, I'd sing him a song, I'd pray with him. And I remember those moments, those moments where my son or my daughter would, would look at me before they could even speak, and how I just thought, oh, I can't wait to hear you talk to me. I can't wait for us to have a conversation. 
And so I wanted to teach you. And the first thing I did is I said, let me give you a word. And you say, dad, no. You say, dad. And what I was trying to communicate to them in that moment was, I'm here. I'm with you. I'm not leaving you. You have a father that is ready to listen. And now they've grown to an age when we lay down, I get to listen to their stories. I get to hear about their joys. I get to hear about their fears. I get to listen to their questions. And I love every single minute of it. And it's my hope and it's my prayer that those precious moments when no one else is looking and it's just me and them and we're talking that those are the most defining moments of their life, more than school, more than friends, more than TV, that it's that time, that quiet time, that unseen time that shapes them. That that's the place that it's the most rewarding. That's prayer and fasting. That you and I have this unbelievable privilege to come with all of our joys to share all of our questions, all of our fears, all of our concerns, and be reminded that we have a God who says, I am here, I will not leave you, I am for you, I am your Father, and I'm ready to listen. And in those precious moments, those unseen moments, it would shape our motives, it would change our identity, because you and I would be forever be impacted by the fact that we have a loving Father who is ready to listen. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled by the way in which you offer your presence, the way in which you give us an opportunity and an access just to be with you. So God, I pray that you would allow us to steward it well. I pray that whatever sort of motivations we have in our hearts, Father, that are, that are driven by the approval of mankind, Father, that we could we could kill those. We could surrender those. Father, that we would be a, a people, each of us as individuals would be those that are passionate for your glory above our own. Father, that you would, you would shape us and help us to see what it means to be content, what it means to forgive, what it means to persevere and to be redeemed and rescued. Father, we pray that you would be the foundation for us, God, in a world that is filled with evil, filled with temptation filled with all these desires, may we surrender them, Father, and may you be our anchor. May you be the hope that is firm and secure. May our lives be built upon you. Help us to take the story of this gospel. Help us to take the truth of these scriptures and not just know them, Father, but may they be the prayers of our life. And God, we are just so grateful that we can call you Father and that you're here even now ready to listen. And so this time is for you. May it be an overflow of our gratitude for what you've done for you, for us. May our voices fill this room and reach the throne room of heaven that you would get the praise and adoration that you deserve. We love you, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.